Our text for today is verses 27 through 30. So if you would read along as I, uh, as I read it to you, please. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. These are words from Jesus. And I am fully aware and gladly aware that the church is as much for the children of God who are children as it is for children of God who are old. And today we deal with an extremely sensitive subject, but one which here is before us in our text and we must deal with it. And so my commitment to you is to seek to be as faithful as I can to the word, as clear as I can be from the word and as sensitive as I can be in the current company. And this is all by God's design, so we plow on. In 2 Samuel 11, we are told about King David um, and we have these heroes of the faith recounted for us through scripture for many reasons, one of which is to see that they too, bearing the same faith that we have, also were fallen and sinful people like us. And sometimes we see some of their darkest moments, and we see what God does with them, and we see what God does by grace in spite of them. Well, here we have one such occasion where David our king of Israel is staying home when other kings are going out to war. That gives us a clue right there in the text that all it might not be as it should be. And what he's doing um, one evening is he's out for just an evening stroll in the palace grounds. And he, the palace was situated above the houses of Jerusalem. And as he was out and about, he saw a gorgeous woman bathing. And he had no clue that she was going to be there on her property taking a bath within eyes view. And at that moment, he was at a moment of decision. Does he look away immediately without sinning, go inside, be with his family, move on? Or does he linger? Well, he lingered. And that was a turning point for him in his life. This second look turned into a cascade of events that included adultery, deceit, murder, the death of an innocent child, and ultimately the destruction of his family. And he repented, and thanks be to God, his, uh, the Lord's grace was poured out upon him. However, from 2 Samuel 11 on through the rest of David's life, we see that things go from bad to worse to worse. And it all stemmed from his decision to take a second look at Bathsheba and move on from there. And today as we press on in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that again, Jesus doesn't shy away from sensitive subjects. He didn't shy away from our anger in the previous section, he doesn't shy away from our lust here. He brings the gospel to bear on the most intimate parts of our hearts, leaving no stone unturned because Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and he means to have all of us. Now remember, what he's doing in this section, these six antitheses in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, is he's showing what true righteousness looks like in contrast to the false righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And today, Jesus shows us what true sexual righteousness looks like. And we'll start where Jesus does 
by looking at the seventh commandment, which he quotes from Exodus 20, verse 13, and Deuteronomy 5, 18. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. As if we didn't know, Jesus makes it plain, adultery is sin. And specifically, adultery is a married person having intimate relations with someone who's not their spouse. Okay, that's the technical definition, the biblical definition of what adultery is. And an unbiblical society like ours gives different words to things that scripture clearly calls sin, such as, in this case, an affair. But we should retain the language of Jesus and call it what it is. It's adultery. It packs a punch. Sexual infidelity in a marriage is adulterous, and God forbids it, which is to say he positively commands, on the flip side, covenant-keeping faithfulness between a husband and a wife. Let's see why. There's always a reason for what God does, and it's always a good reason. Well, we're going to spend the entire morning next Sunday looking at marriage as God intends it because if we don't understand what Jesus thinks of marriage, then we won't understand what to make of his teaching on divorce and remarriage, which is the next subject in the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm not going to get into very, to marriage very much today. We'll, we'll, we'll save that for next week. But we are going to consider briefly what is marriage? What is going on here? Well, of course, we have to go back to creation because it's at creation that God makes Adam from the dust and places him in the garden to do two things, to work it and to keep it, or to build it and to protect it, if you will. And those are the same two things that God gives command for men to do today. And then he makes Eve and puts her there as a companion and a helper for Adam in his task. And he puts them together in this covenant of marriage and gives them a blessing an intimate relationship to seal that covenant. And it says he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And Paul, talking about marriage in Ephesians 5, in one of the best known marriage passages in all of scripture, he looks back to Genesis 2 and he quotes from Genesis 2 and he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it, is a, it refers to Christ and the church. As one author summed it up, marriage is a covenant union that's sealed with a sexual relationship. And this relationship is intended to produce children who will fill the earth for the glory of God and spread his glory as much as the water covers the seas. That was the original design. And God still intends for that to happen. And it's, it's a picture that is so intimate, so sacred, that Paul says it's really something pointing beyond itself. It's pointing to the power of the gospel between Jesus and his church as he redeems and washes her and she loves and follows and respects and submits to him. In all its fullness, marriage is to be a living watercolor of the gospel. There's a distinct flavor for Christian marriage that can be true of no other union in all the world. Enter adultery. When one spouse steps outside the covenant union and joins with another person, a number of things happen all at once. First, that covenant is broken. Proverbs 2 and verse 17 and 18 says that the adulteress forgets the covenant of her God and brings down her house. And also, the innocent spouse is sinned against in the most profound and, and trust-shattering way. And as we're going to see when Jesus talks about divorce, this is one of two things, about two things that, that God actually permits divorce for, even though he doesn't command it. 
And if the person on the other end of the adulterous relationship is married, then their spouse is sinned against also because their spouse has been taken from them by somebody else. And if Christians are to be known by love, and the great commandments are to love God with the whole heart and to love the neighbor as the self, well, then neighbor love is completely out of the picture in adultery. And what happens instead is selfish passion. Adultery also devastates children, especially if it results in divorce. And more than that, and it never stays only within the confines of the home, adultery hits at the foundations of society. Because you may notice that before God instituted the government or the church, he instituted the family. And adultery crumbles the foundations and it works its way up. And then finally, if the person who's fallen into adultery is a confessing believer, then they lose the assurance of their salvation as long as they're unrepentant because they're acting in a way that is indistinguishable from the world. All of these reasons and more are behind the seventh commandment. You see, adultery is oftentimes understood to be simply the act of sleeping with someone other than your spouse. And that's certainly how the scribes and the Pharisees understood it. And that's true, but it's not merely true. It goes beyond that. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees understood for them and their skin-deep righteousness that as long as they didn't go to bed with somebody other than their wife, they could be considered righteous. Everything is all right. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. <laughs> as with everything, it goes straight to the heart. And Jesus takes us there to the heart of adultery, which is what the commandment is really about. Verse 28, he says, but I say to you, and again, he's not, he's not saying in contrast to or in place of what God gave in the commandment. He's saying, in contrast to your misunderstanding of the commandment, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus locates adultery in the heart first before the body ever gets involved, if the body ever gets involved, because sometimes it doesn't. And one of the ways that the scribes misunderstood the seventh commandment was to isolate it from the tenth. Do you remember that one? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Well, coveting is a matter of the heart, not the externals. And Jesus says in the Beatitudes that those who believe in him are pure in heart, and they shall see God. And when we looked at that Beatitude, we saw that the heart is your inner self. Sometimes it's called the inner man. It's what Proverbs calls the wellspring of life. The biblical writers meant by the heart the center of your motives, your emotions, your intentions, your desires. And often the Bible emphasizes especially the center of your thoughts. Where you set your heart, your body will follow. What you set your heart on, you will go there. That's the logic of the heart. And Jesus says that the heart of murder is anger. That We saw that last week. And the heart of adultery and sexual morality is lust. And Jesus says it's from the heart that murder and adultery and sexual immorality come. He says that in Mark 7, verse 21. And so Jesus has the heart in view here, and that's so important because without that, we don't see what's going on. And he says that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in the deepest part of who he is, which raises the question for all Christians, what precisely does Jesus mean? What does it mean to look with lustful intent? Well, in verse 28, you'll see the word looks. 
okay? Everyone who looks. And for those English nerds who go in for grammar, that verb is in the present tense and in the active voice, which simply means he's not just talking about a passing glance or simply noticing that a woman is beautiful. This is, in fact, the active and intentional gaze of the heart that comes from a desire to be with that person, okay? Renowned commentator John Stott says, we all know the difference between looking and lusting. It's true. We all know the difference between looking and lusting. So it's not just being aware that someone's attractive. It's not just David even seeing Bathsheba for the first time on his roof. That wasn't where he went wrong. It's fixing the thoughts on that person and letting the imagination have free reign. It's David staying on the roof, going back for the second look, and letting his desires fuel his thoughts instead of taking his thoughts captive to obey Christ as he should have. And please don't think that Jesus is only restricting this here to married people since he uses the word adultery. No, it's obvious that when he says everyone, married or not, who looks at a woman, whether she's somebody's wife or not, with lustful intent has already been guilty of adultery in the heart. Jesus has in mind sexual immorality, period. Married or unmarried, he brings everybody together in this. And he pulls back the curtain on what God meant when he talks about adultery. As with everything in the Christian life, this goes all the way down. And it works all the way out. So that to entertain the desire and imagination for someone who is not your spouse, even if it's only ever in the privacy of your own thoughts, this is the heart of adultery. And it's not just men that Jesus is targeting here either. Because God created men and women, and part of that very good creation was the gift of sexual desire. And that desire is to be given full, free, Christ-exalting reign in the marriage covenant, both for men and for women. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul doesn't just say the wife's body belongs to her husband. He also says, equal authority here, the husband's body belongs to the wife. Okay? So Jesus hardly means here that a man entertaining desire for a woman is sinful, while a woman entertaining desire for a man is righteous. No. For both men and women to give free reign to the imagination, which is a gift of God, the imagination, and to use it for unholy purposes is sin. That's the heart of the seventh commandment, plain and simple. Now, our cultural moment is what it is, okay? Ever since the 1960s, the sexual revolution has been sweeping on. And this revolution, as all revolutions do, threw off the constraints of what had traditionally been understood as normal biblical Morality, And it's not that immorality and adultery haven't always been part of the human race, okay? Uh, they have. <laughs> but what the revolution does is it takes what is kept private in the bedroom and it brings it out into the streets. It gives it a whole month, calls it pride, and then it moves on for everybody to see and celebrate. Okay, the revolution brought onto the streets what had been kept in the dark, and that included going all the way back to the 60s, the widespread use of the pill and other chemical birth control. It normalized premarital and extramarital intimacy. Love is love. Quickly, legalized abortion followed, as it must have. And the pornography industry skyrocketed. And what we're seeing now with the LGBTQIA plus movement is simply the latest wave of it. And thanks be to God, and this is truly something for which to be thankful, 
faithful biblical churches, and I do mean faithful and biblical, are not bowing the knee to the latest onslaught, but are continuing to confess and teach that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and that sexual activity is righteous. It is good only within the bounds of marriage between a biological male and a biological female. And however, at the same time, Christians in those faithful biblical churches falter in Jesus' teaching here about adultery. As we may comfort ourselves all day that we're on the right side of the revolution from a biblical standpoint, and yet how many of us steal a lustful glance at someone we find attractive? This is the heart of adultery. How many of us find ourselves in compromising situations before our television because of a foolish choice of entertainment that we had no business entertaining? How many Christian men and women use pornography, lustfully treating God's image bearers as objects to be consumed by the eyes and the mind instead of precious souls made in the image of God to be cherished? And tragically, countless pastoral ministries have made shipwreck on these very rocks, some of them very famously, many, many more without most people knowing. See, the sexual revolutions made it easier than ever to indulge lust, and the tide obviously isn't turning around anytime soon. In fact, if you read the progression of Romans 1, it goes from bad to worse. That tends to be the way of sin. But what we don't need is a counter-revolution, okay? The way to answer revolution is not with revolution, it's with reformation. We need a biblical sexual reformation that shines the glory of God in a way that brings the world and all of its sexual brokenness up short because it doesn't know to do with the holiness of a God who made all things very good. And for followers of Christ, there's no other way. We have to insist on this kind of a reformation to shine the glory of Christ into a world of darkness. And Jesus shows us how. He always shows us how, and here in our passage, he shows us how to have a sexual reformation. And it begins with each of us. And so we ask with the psalmist, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, by guarding it. How? According to your word. And so I'm going to give you nine biblical truths that will keep your way pure by God's grace. Each one is worth a sermon of its own, but we have a lot of Sermon on the Mount to cover in the weeks ahead. And so I'm going to just give, give them to you all in summary form. If you will covenant with me, that you will just go and do them with God's help. Because if I get word that you're not doing them, I'm doing nine sermons. Okay? All right. We have an understanding. Here you go. Here's how to have a sexual reformation. First, realize the cost of lust. Okay, realize the cost of lust. Look with me at what Jesus says in verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So Jesus has just been talking to us about adultery, and he shows here what the cost of adultery is if it's not dealt with. He says the cost is hell. Eternal condemnation from the Holy One. The wages of sin is what? It's death. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, we're told what the civil penalty in Israel was for committing adultery. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. 
And the Israelites who were listening to the Sermon on the Mount probably would have had that in mind as Jesus was talking. But then Jesus goes radical with the whole thing. And he says, listen, it's not just death penalty. It's eternal death penalty. It's hell. And this is because someone who is saved by the amazing grace of God in the gospel cannot live in unrepentant sin, whether that's pornography or a free-reigning lustful imagination or an adulterous relationship. Someone, if they have been gripped by the grace of God, and that's who Jesus is talking to in the Sermon on the Mount, remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit who cling to Christ by faith, who then have a righteousness exceeding that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It is these people who cannot live in unrepentant sexual sin because the grace of God will change every heart that is in Christ. Paul says it most plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The cost of unrepentant lust will be eternal death in hell. Because it shows that that heart has never believed in the saving grace of God. Now hear me clearly, what I am not saying is I'm not saying that somebody who's truly battling and then falls is not saved. That is not what I'm saying because it's not what Jesus is saying. But if you are enslaved and are not taking your sin seriously, you are not making war on it, you are not repenting of it, it might mean that you were never in Christ. But hear me clearly on this. A death penalty was paid for your adultery and for mine. And that death was paid by the sinless son of God. He died for our adulteries that we wouldn't need to. And so when I say realize the cost of lust, I don't just mean realize the cost of lust to you. I mean realize the cost to God. That at the price of his precious blood, son's blood, you were redeemed. That you might find forgiveness and never pay the penalty for your sins. Amen? This is good news. And second, repent, repent of your sexual sins if you are in them. If Jesus died for you, then come to him in repentant faith. And to remind us, repentance means to turn away from sin, to forsake it. Where once we loved it, to now hate it. Where once we clung to it, to put it away. To have a hostile relationship to it instead of a friendly one. And so if you find yourself in a battle for your soul over your sin, and you wonder if you can escape, the answer is yes, in Jesus, yes, yes and amen. And so listen to what Paul says in the very next verse to the Corinthians after he says that the sexually immoral will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, and such were some of you. That was you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You are free. You are free free at this very moment to turn away from sexual sin. Jesus is talking about repentance when he says to cut off the right hand and gouge out the right eye if they cause you to sin. He's talking about putting sin away. And he doesn't say it to condemn. No, he's saying it to woo and to lead his people to the only hope that they have of redemption. He convicts to save. So whatever it takes, turn to Christ by faith and leave sin behind you at the cross.
And third, recognize that if you are in Christ, you are dead to sin. One of the most fatal flaws for Christians who keep falling into any kind of enslaving sin is that they haven't considered themselves dead to it, but they've considered it still possible. Now, mark my words, wherever you consider sin a possibility, it will become a reality, okay? Paul tells the Romans the death, Christ died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And so in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, what do we do? He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You see, Christian men who struggle with pornography will often have an accountability software of some kind on their computer to filter out stuff that shouldn't be there and then send a report to an accountability partner. And those things are good, they're important for what they are, but they don't change the heart, not even the slightest. No external software can ever change the internal hardware, okay? Only the Spirit of God can do that. So if a man considers himself dead to lust, he could be minding his own business and then all of a sudden get caught in a tornado of pop-up windows on his screen and he's going to shut that thing down immediately without a second thought, go find his wife and say, honey, can you clear the screen? I got to go work. He's considered himself dead to it. He doesn't consider it a possibility. He doesn't go, oh no, what have I done? What is this? It'll be okay. I can resist. He's dead already, dead in the water. Consider yourself dead to sin. Next, if you would have a sexual reformation and follow after Christ in true righteousness, then radically rid yourself of your pitfalls. Radically rid yourself of your pitfalls. This is the meaning of what Jesus is saying by telling you to maim your eye and hand. He does not want you to go cut off your hand or gouge out your eye physically. He doesn't, okay? Okay. Number one, we are all of us disobedient, if that's what he meant, because we've all of us done enough with our hands and our eyes, okay? And there have been some in church history who have taken that to the extreme, to the point of even cutting off other things. And then Origen, the church father, famously did that in response to this passage, and then after the fact admitted it didn't solve the problem, and maybe he had misunderstood Jesus. That's an awfully awkward and difficult time to realize you misinterpreted the text. So don't do that. Please, whatever you do. Do what Jesus is saying. Cut out all the places in your life where you get into trouble. Cut out all the places in your life where you get into trouble. Some women can't read certain novels or watch certain movies without fantasizing. And Jesus says, if that's you, it's better never to read or watch again than to go to hell. And make no mistake, Fifty Shades of Grey isn't gray at all. It's literary porn. Okay. Some men can't have internet access on their phone or computer or television without sinning. And if that's you, Jesus says, better to go internetless than to go to hell. Better not to have a TV than to have one and be in hell. See, heart adultery may begin with a second look of the eye. It may progress to taking action with the hand, but the heart will always be the wellspring. And this is why radically ridding yourself of your pitfalls will look like getting rid of whatever it is that is your stumbling block into sin time after time after time. But remember, this too is external and doesn't change the heart. 
the most, radically thi- the most radical thing that you can cut off, and you should, is your sinful desires in the heart, which God calls circumcision of the heart. And so he says to us what he says to Israel. Deuteronomy 30 and verse six, he says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. If you have a circumcised heart that has clung to Christ by faith, is looking to Christ by faith, loving Jesus in faith, then you will love him and not lust. A circumcised heart that loves the Lord will also be a heart that resolves not to sin sexually, okay? And this is another step that must be taken. Resolve not to sin sexually. You see, if you consider yourself dead to sin, you will resolve not to sin. Now to remind us, being resolved to something means to be resolute. It means to be firmly set toward the thing that you've resolved. Jesus had his face set like a flint toward Jerusalem. He was resolved to die, and not even his disciples could dissuade him. If we are resolved not to sin, we will not be moved by the slightest breeze of temptation. Job was the most righteous man of his day. He loved God with all his heart. And as he's in the midst of his suffering, wondering, what have I done that would cause me such anguish? Could it be my integrity? He says, no. He looks, and and look what he says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 31. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job had covenanted with himself. He had resolved not to let his eyes linger where his heart didn't belong. He was faithful to his wife. Go and do likewise. See, friends, we can't help but encounter temptation. In the pornographic and immodest culture in which we live, it's all around us all the time. You can't watch a show without some kind of temptation. But by God's help, we can train ourselves to run from temptation, to run from temptation when it comes. And this is what Paul tells the Corinthians, as we heard read earlier, flee from sexual immorality. Now, there are different kinds of running. There's plodding. Okay, this is the guy who thinks he's out for a jog, but we all know better. Okay, there's sprinting and everything in between. Fleeing, if you had to place that on the spectrum, you're probably placing it a lot closer to the sprinting side than the plotting side. Don't just, oh no, there's temptation. What, what will I do? Oh no, I fell again. Flee sexual immorality, run from temptation. I think Paul must have had maybe Joseph in mind when he was writing this. Joseph, who was wrongfully sold into Egypt, who was enslaved, served his master to the glory of God with all his heart, even though day by day, his, adulterous, his, wife's adulter- his master's adulterous wife was enticing and tempting him. And what does he do day by day? He says no, he doesn't give it a second thought, and he goes about his work. And then, even with his being resolute, we're told, But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. That is a godly game plan. If you fall into sin when you're by yourself, don't be by yourself. If you can't handle it, don't be by yourself. Pick up the phone, call a believing friend, go over meet for coffee, run from temptation. Better never to be alone in your house than to be in the company of many in hell. 
is what Jesus is saying. You see, the very first blessing that God ever gave humanity was a marriage blessing. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And so it's no wonder then that in this battle against sexual sin, one of the most powerful ways to prevent heart adultery is to rejoice in your spouse. Now, I know this doesn't apply to everyone, but it will apply to most people at some point. And it's important for us to know. And this is precisely what Solomon says to his son when he cautions him against the destructiveness of adultery. In the portion uh, from Proverbs 5 that was read earlier, Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That is powerful language, intoxicated. Be enamored with your spouse. And in a culture that says that after that honeymoon period, things just kind of like, if you can just make it and get through to the end being faithful, don't expect the passion to stay. Friends, I think that's a lie from the pit of hell. This whole thing is supposed to image Jesus in the church. And when do we ever tell somebody that it's okay to just cool off in their love for Jesus? No, friends, we are told to rejoice in our spouse. And there may be years of pain and bitterness that get in the way, in which case ask for help and pray. Do you see the power of this? These are the Lord's words. I'm not making them up. I'm not that good. He says, take delight in your spouse. It's one of the most powerful weapons against adultery. And so I promise, if you study your spouse and talk with your spouse and do the hard work of reconciling with your spouse, if you will do that and spend time having fun with your spouse and reading scripture with your spouse, then you won't be studying or spending time with thinking about other people's spouses. This isn't rocket surgery or brain science, as Pastor John says. It just makes sense. And the Bible is not boring. What Solomon is saying here and what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 is that as a general rule, both spouses should be intimately available to each other because this is the only sanctified outlet. And that's as it should be. And in case it doesn't go without saying, and you have to say this, this is not an excuse for a husband to be a bonehead to ignore his wife, to speak rudely to her, to not do the dishes, and then just come when he wants something from her. It's not a license for either spouse to insist on their way whenever they want. It's an exhortation to love one another, to sacrifice for one another, to put one another first, to look out for the other's good, and to enjoy each other regularly, all within the context of a gracious covenantal relationship. Rejoice in your spouse. The kind of reformation we're looking at this morning only happens also when believers relate honorably to others. Relate honorably to others. See, I fully realize that not everyone is married and some people won't be, okay? But far from sometimes, you know, this message that sometimes gets subtly caught and taught in Christian circles, singleness is not any kind of a lesser status in the church. In fact, Paul speaks quite highly of it. In fact, he says, there are some benefits to it that I wish you all were like I am, single. Even though he realizes that for most people, that's not going to be normative. For most people, it's not going to be wise. 
Pastor theologian James Montgomery Boyce rightly points out that the intimate relationship in marriage is only one facet of a very deep, robust fellowship between a believing husband and wife. And in fact, as we look at scripture, most Christian fellowship and edification is happening outside of marriage. And so every single believer, young, old, single, married, divorced, remarried, whatever the case may be, has an important part to play here in guarding one another honorably, building one another up. And so Paul tells Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. So in our interactions with one another, it's a matter of life and death that we guard one another's purity. And that means that for those who are not married, not treating another person as if you are married to them, even if you're dating them. So, and that, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge key, parents, is you're shepherding your young adults through romantic relationship when it comes time to consider marriage. Don't treat somebody else like your spouse if they're not. Guard what belongs to your spouse at all costs. And if you're not married, don't act toward that person like you are. As Beyonce said, if you like it, put a ring on it. And she's not a theologian, but she got that right. Until you put a ring on it, take note of what Paul says. This is the will of God, your sanctification, okay? that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in these matters. And finally, and this really is the most important thing, and if you take nothing else away this morning, please take this. If you would avoid adultery in your heart, then rest in the goodness of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Rest in the goodness of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Young people and single people, lawfully divorced people and widows, or even people who are in a marriage where one spouse has disabilities. There are a number of people who may very much desire to have the kind of relationship that Solomon's describing here, and some are facing very real temptation on a regular basis and not able to find that fulfillment in a Christian marriage. And if that's you, I need you to know something. Your situation does not catch God off guard and you are not in the second best plan for your life. He's sovereign and his goodness abounds to you. He promises that no temptation will overcome you except what is common and who will always provide a way of escape. It does not need to grab a hold of you. Friends, Joseph was single when he spurned the advances of Potiphar's wife. They were alone in the house, no one needed to know. But Joseph, the single man who would become married later said, hey, there's a way out, and he fled. Jesus says that his power is sufficient for you in your weakness, married or unmarried, no matter what temptation you're in and no matter how deep you've gone. Friends, the gospel says there's a new beginning. Today is the day of salvation, and his mercies are new every morning. So I don't care what your sexual past is. Today, rest in the goodness of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as Romans 8.13 says, by the Spirit, you can put to death the deeds of the body and live in holiness. We are We are on point when we sing, because of his great love, we are not overcome. We are not overcome. So we must chase after Christ, rest in his goodness and the power of the spirit in us. We take seriously what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount about true righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. 
And to bring it all together, here it is in a nutshell. Lust is heart adultery. It leads to hell. So leave lust and love Jesus. Okay, lust is heart adultery and leads to hell. So leave lust and love Jesus. And by God's grace, if you do, I promise you will be more satisfied than you ever thought possible. And the day is coming, friends, when marriage will be no more. We will have the fullness of what the picture pointed to. We will be with Jesus in all of his glory and goodness as the pure spotless bride of Christ. And today he means to continue that work of purification. We come to the Lord's table and it's here at the Lord's table where we see the goodness of Christ Jesus clearly put out for us. We receive these elements as Christians by faith and know that Jesus nourishes us by faith. He actually does something here to strengthen us in our souls. It's mysterious and it's beautiful. If you're weary and convicted of sin, come. I just kept going in the Sermon on the Mount and it just happened to be that Jesus was the one who decided to deal with anger and lust. And friends, he's getting at me too. I commend you for coming back, okay? And again, he never convicts, but to comfort those who come to him. And so if you're weary, he means you to be at the table. Confess your sins to the Lord and trust in his blood. Turn to him, realize he is sufficient for you, and then be thankful and rejoice, because we have much to rejoice about. If, however, your faith has not been placed in Jesus, if you know that you do not trust in him and haven't gotten there yet, then we would ask you simply to stay where you are today because the scripture warns us these elements are only for those who follow Christ. If you're interested in following Christ, please talk to me, to an elder or a small group leader after the service. We would love to give an introduction to you, to the Savior. I'm gonna read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the words of institution. And as I do, the elders who are serving the supper, if you would please come forward during the reading. We're going to be having you come forward today again and receiving the supper from the elders. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, our blessed Savior, who spoke to us the words of the Sermon on the Mount, that we might hear them, heed them, and come to you always by faith. We do so yet again, acknowledging how often we have gone far afield from your holiness, knowing that like a tender shepherd, you lead us back. And while it is not easy, it is good. Thank you for being so honest with us and showing us the way forward. Not that we would have a righteousness of our own, but that we may live out that righteousness which is foreign to us, your righteousness imputed to us, and then grown in us through the new birth. Lord, we come to your table this morning expectant and needy. We ask that you would do that work that you, please, you are pleased to do and to, to form um, 
to form in us a heart of more tender love, a deeper disgust with sin, and a greater satisfaction with the gospel. As we take this bread and this cup, we remember your body broken, your blood poured out, and we look forward to the day when you will come again. Jesus, thank you. And it's in your holy, righteous name that we pray. Amen.